At the point in the story of Job that Amy just read for us, the conversation is going back and forth between Job and his so-called friends. They've come supposedly to comfort him in his suffering, but right out of the gate, each of them makes an argument for why this terrible rash of suffering is legitimately happening to Job. There must be a valid reason, they decide, and they're going to name it as if that will make things better. One friend argues that Job is being punished for his sins. Another makes the case that Job is being tested. A third suggests that Job is suffering because God's will is arbitrary. Now, although Job is deeply despairing at this point in the story, he has cursed the day he was born just before his friends arrived. Once he begins to interact with them, it is interesting how energetically he resists their ideas of blame and responsibility. He counters them with arguments and evidence of his own. And we might know, note the language that he uses frequently is the language of faith in God, appeals to what he believes about God's integrity and God's justice and mercy. It feels like he's pushing back, pushing back against what his friends are saying about God, but also pushing back against God. Job needs and wants God to be fair, to be just, to not be arbitrary. And he argues for that. And that's the context and what it feels like to us when he speaks the words that Amy read for us this evening. That Job is making a case for where we humans stand in relation to the Creator that is, who is responsible for life? Who gets credit for things? And what it means to care. Listen to his words again. But ask the animals, and they will teach you. The birds of the air, and they will tell you. Ask the plants of the earth, and they will teach you. The fish of the sea, and they will declare to you. Who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this. In God's hand is the life of every living being, the breath of every human being. Now, when Job, when Job is talking about who has done this, he is talking about his own terrible situation, how it has fallen on him. But he is also talking in terms of a broader context. That is, he is talking about the creation. Who has done this? Who has created this? That's evidenced in his invoking of animals and plants. He's talking about the creation, the width and breadth, and how it is not just humans who have a voice, a testimony, <clears throat> a place in the order of things. Indeed, the creation gives its own testimony. 
the creation will be our teacher if we will only listen. So, why have we pretended that we alone are in charge? That we are somehow independent of the creation and of the creator? Do we imagine that our human lives stand at the center of the universe or that we are our own creators? If so, what hubris, what delusion? Do we imagine that this is our world or is this God's world? And if it is God's world, then isn't it a world in which every created thing belongs? And a world that belongs to every created thing. Birds and fish, plants and animals, air and water and soil. Isn't it a world that the Creator shares with the whole of creation? Humans are just one small piece of the whole. There may be eight billion of us, but we're one small piece. Does it take a Job-like experience to realize that? Why would we imagine that somehow we are most important, solely important, exclusively deserving? Why would we imagine that we live in an isolated and expectedly insulated experience of life? That we are not all connected within the creation, all connected and all belonging to and with each other, even as we all belong to and with God the Creator. Think about that story from Genesis 1, the order of the creation story. It does not put us first. We are part of the natural world not the possessors of it. In the occasional series in the Christian Century magazine that focuses on one particular word as a writing prompt for reflection and then invites writers to submit short essays that connect their own thoughts and lives to that particular word, the word most recently lifted up was the word spark. And one writer in rural Virginia submitted an essay that connected creation care awareness with a spark of grace. He wrote, the parsonage was located beside a menagerie. On several acres, the neighbors kept dogs, cats, a pony, goats, chickens, guinea fowl, peacocks, and other large birds so exotic I could never identify them. Sometimes I enjoyed the squawks, bleats, neighs, and other sounds drifting through the trees between our properties, and sometimes I was annoyed by them. But when the peacocks visited and spread their stunning plumage like fans fallen from heaven, my petty resentments were swept away. When the neighbors moved... 
They took or sold everything except inexplicably two roosters. We called them the leftover roosters. They lived wild in a little patch of woods and crowed at all hours of the day and night. No one fed them or looked after them in any way, but they survived somehow and they crowed and crowed and crowed. Often, awakened in the middle of the night by those roosters, I imagined various ways of dispatching them. A few times I was ready to act, but my conscience or my wife always stopped me. After an embarrassing amount of thought given to those two roosters, I deduced that they behaved that way because they were being driven mad by starvation. So I bought my first ever bag of chicken feed and started feeding them. They stopped crowing. Well, they crowed, of course, but only in the mornings like, roast, like roosters are supposed to. They also began roosting in a tree outside our bedroom window, which didn't bother me either. They were easier to feed that way. When I started toward them each morning with my little bowl of feed, they made the neatest cooing and clucking noises. We had a routine. We had a relationship. I had roosters. I had transitioned from plotting to take their lives to caring for them. The roosters did not change, except for the change that care, nurture, and relationship made possible for them. The essential change took place within me. I call this the rooster lesson, he concludes, a parable sparked by neglect, cries for help, and an unwarranted grace that transformed my heart. There's something that echoes of Job when the writer says, the essential change took place in me. Creation doesn't need to change. We do. Last Sunday, in relation to speaking of the rewards of service, I said this, the rewards of service are rewards of meaningfulness, of relationship, of reorientation toward giving, and the reward of the surprise of receiving when you thought you were giving. And these things not only bless us, they change us, they deepen us, we might even be transformed. And isn't everything we do in the example of Jesus, I said, an invitation to transformation? to be changed from the inside out, to have the inside and the outside finally match up. An invitation to see ourselves as intimately and necessarily connected to each other. An invitation to participate in the healing of the world. The man with the relationship with the roosters also uses the word transformation. I had transitioned from plotting to take their lives to caring for them, he says. The roosters did not change except for the change that care, nurture, and a relationship made possible for them. The essential change took place within me. I call this the rooster lesson, a parable sparked by neglect, cries for help, and an unwarranted grace that transformed my heart. I like that he comes to this realization not because he was undisturbed, but because he couldn't sleep in peace. I like that he comes to this realization not just in the spaces of human relationship, but in a space of relationship to the created world. 
I like that he comes to this realization that somehow he recognizes that he must shift in his engagement with the creation. Shift from paralysis to problem solving. Shift from an imagination oriented toward frustration and potential violence to an imagination oriented toward help and nurture. Shift from seeing things at a distance to seeing things close up. And a shift from neglect to relationship. And there's something compelling about the idea that he can learn all this, not just in the classroom or in a church sanctuary or in an online class or even at his mother's knee, but that he can learn all this outside in his own backyard as he finally figures out how to deal with those two abandoned roosters those two immediate backyard representatives of God's creation. It's also encouraging that his lesson can and should be our lesson. The lesson of a transformed relationship with the creation, the lesson about the possibility of, quote, an unwarranted grace that transforms the heart, the lesson of how nurture is, in the end, more a more powerful means of change than violence will ever be. The lesson that he is not alone in a human-only world. Hooray for two annoying roosters. Hooray for the triumph of beauty, of care in the natural world. And indeed, not just in this story, but in nearly every story of engagement with our immediate environment and all its inhabitants, intentional and compassionate acts of care just might change everything. Now that's a thought, isn't it? To consider the possibility of compassionate engagement with the environment around us, changing everything but especially changing us. To consider what beautiful and restorative and healing thing might happen when we care enough to listen to the birds, to let the plants teach us, to let the fish talk to us, these ones who testify. To consider what beautiful and restorative thing might happen when we come to understand that God's hand is in it all. To consider what beautiful and restorative and healing thing might happen when we find our place and see our connection. God's interaction with this world is not arbitrary. God blesses this world with divine care, with the breath of life. You know this. And you know that the natural world is a gift from God. And that the natural world, the created world, has cared for you. And God has cared for you. Even in times of suffering, you know this. You know this. You know that you have been given life and breath. You know that you have been gifted with food to eat and earth to walk on and rain from the sky and sun on your face and even a gentle breeze at the right moment. 
You know that you have been cared for even as the whole earth thrives best in an ever-returning cycle of care. You know it, but will you live as though you know it? Will we live as though we know it? Or will we spin arguments with our friends about why we are unhappy, that we are not the center of the universe, unhappy with the giver of life, the giver of breath? The blessings of creation are a gift of God. And the care we return to the creation is our thank you. When we turn another degree away from our inattentiveness or our reactiveness, and especially our selfishness, when we learn to care enough about the created world to stop doing violence and start doing nurture, we are saying our thank you. We are saying our thank you by partnering and participating with God. Now, is that always easy to know how to do that? To know what is best, what best cares for the world, what most effectively heals the world? No, of course not. It's always possible that you try to do the good thing and your good intentions don't turn out the way you intended. But we have to do the best we can with the knowledge and resources we have. And we can begin by purposing to be less greedy and more other-concerned. And we can focus on remembering who gives light and life and breath and who declares it good. And maybe we can even become curious enough to ask the birds to talk to us and then listen to what they say, to ask the earth to teach us, and then to listen to its lessons. Is this a spiritual calling? Is this our spiritual calling? Yes, it is. Along with hospitality and inclusion, along with simplicity and authenticity, along with service, this call to care for the creation is one of the building blocks of who we are. This call to care for the creation, to turn away from violating and toward nurturing the created world is another piece of who we are and who we have been called to be. But please realize this as well. This kind of care, including the care of creation, starts out close to home. And it begins with wonder and affirmation and, yes, perspective. You have to first admire and love the created world before you can take steps you might take to heal the world. And maybe to do that, you have to get out of the way of yourself step out of yourself and into creation. About a week ago, Rainer and I took his dog on a long walk. We walked out of our neighborhood and across State Highway 13 through the Baptist Church property there along the railroad tracks, and then we walked over the railroad bridge and down the bank so we could go under the bridge to the edge of the stream, Clear Creek, which is just kind of behind me, that flows through that area. The water rushes along there under the bridge. The dog stepped into its flow and put its muzzle down into the water to feel its cooling rush. Then we left the stream and we pushed through the weeds into the stretch of land that runs south alongside the railroad tracks, walking south with the track to our east and the cornfield to our west. We walked past the new housing development there, finally coming out onto 9th Avenue, and we turned left east, walking across the railroad tracks and then down across the grassy field by the road and then down Charlie Street 
And we came on to our 25-acre church property at its south end. As we looked from south to north, we could see our church's solar panels off in the distance, smaller in perspective than I had ever seen them. I smiled as I looked north and thought about that project, what it took for us to get to that and what it means now and what it will mean in the future of, in terms of energy gathered from the sun. What an important expression of care. We walked north then onto the church property, except as we followed the trails, we wound around so that we were no longer walking in a straight line. I smiled at that too. The solar panels may be arrayed in straight lines, but the natural beauty of creation rarely is. We walked past the memorial garden, right through the area where you are sitting right now, and continued north all the way back to State Highway 13 to head home. As we walked past the last part of the church property, the prairie grass project that is now in the process of being renewed stretched out to the east. If you're driving by on the highway, or if you peek around the corner of the building and don't get very close, you'll see only a burst of green, weedy vegetation. Up close, you see the colors of wildflowers, the vivid orange of a particularly large butterfly bush, and the delicate purple and blue blooms of flowers and plants I do not know, along with the tall stalks of milkweed with their blooms also inviting the butterflies, the small tufts of blue-stem prairie grass pushing up on the south rise, and the larger tufts of Indian grass returning on the north side. It's good to walk on the land. It reminds me of how connected I feel to this place, to the rise and fall of the land, to the vegetation, the flowers, the birds, the sun, the Indiana sky. I need to be reminded of that connection. It makes me feel less isolated, less self-importantly human, and more connected to the creation. I need that, and I need to be reminded each time I do less violence and more nurture of the creation, I am partnering and participating with God. I need to be reminded that nature has a way of healing me, even as I imagine what it looks like for me to help heal it. Creation isn't just about problems to be solved. Creation care isn't just about problems to be solved. It is first of all about awareness, knowing who and where we are in the world. Not in the center, but in the midst. And it is also about love, loving the beautiful and wondrous world God has provided for us and for all living things. Thanks be to God. Amen.